This is a Counterspin Media presentation. Now you must know, things are very wrong right now. The William Bissett Report. Hello and welcome. Now in this video I want to talk about weapons of mass destruction. But not a weapon that you may be familiar with, a weapon that's perhaps caused more deaths than atomic, all atomic bombs combined. And that weapon is fear. Fear, I believe, is one of the greatest precursors to control and compliance. And we also know that fear is a precursor to chronic disease. Now, I have in the studio Aaron. Thank you very much for coming, Aaron. Now, Aaron, this is a, a subject I'd like to talk about because uh, you've spent your lifetime understanding how the mind works. In fact, uh, at the Bryland Functional Medicine Centre, a lot of people come into us, with us and uh, they have a disease and there is an, an emotional correlation. I send them off to you and they give me great feedback. I met you a couple of years ago. Um, I think you're probably the most gifted speaker uh, on stage. Uh, you're entertaining, uh, very informative, uh, helpful. Uh, you even run here um, at the clinic a, a workshop and I've, I've talked to a lot of your clients. Participants. Clients, participants, participants. yep. Um, and they all rave about you. In fact, I've, I've heard people say that you've completely changed your life. In fact, word on the street is that the, you know, uh, Aaron McLaughlin is the, is, is the new uh, Jordan Peterson. How, how do you respond to that? Garbage. <laughs> Aaron's thinking Jordan Peterson is the new Aaron McLaughlin. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> thank, thank you. Yeah. So, look, both of us have witnessed an incredible destructions on, on people's morale. Um, how do you feel about me calling fear a weapon of mass destruction? Pretty spot on, really. Fear is, it's a paradox, because fear is required. We need to have an awareness of self-preservation. And the way that's structured in the mind is, is that it's really very primal. Uh, example, crossing the street. You, know, you look left, look right, someone beeps a horn, you pull back. And so we have an, an automatic response to anything that could cause or potentially cause harm. We will generate a fear. Flight, fight, or freeze, and then we'll respond accordingly. How it can be used, how would you say, nefariously, is to utilize existing situations, like a, like a virus? Like a virus, like... Um, climate change. Climate change. <laughs> um, and then, you know, find, I guess, the, the peace that gets people and wind it up. You know, um, as they say in publishing, grind the problem. In news, they say grind the problem and then hopefully we can... Uh, tickle the, 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 the curiosity with a possible solution. But what we find, and I actually had a client recently who uh, became insomnia, uh, became insomniac, I guess, um, because she read a book about sleep, which ground the problem of what might happen if you don't get enough sleep mm. to such a degree that she couldn't get into bed anymore because she felt so frightened about whether she wasn't going to get any sleep or not. It's like, oh my, so that's fear. Mm. And I suppose the mechanism um, to deliver fear would be through propaganda. Would that be a fair enough comment? Yeah, and propaganda is pretty much no nothing other than, structurally speaking, understanding how the mind is uh, programmed, if you like. So propaganda 
is even used overtly now that um, they have uh, ministries of propaganda even, that their whole role is to instruct the population around a better way to think about whatever's going on. And there are, uh, my, my training in clinical hypnosis uh, tells me that there are three major processes that, that involves. One is fixed attention, and generally that's on the media, or on a phone, which is media, the TV, which is media, or the auditory, which is radio, which is media. And the second part is uh, suspension of disbelief. So they always get an expert, someone with a PhD, or someone in a, uh, a civil service to uh, speak. And what we do is we suspend disbelief. We suspend disbelief, we go, well, they're an expert, so we'll just let whatever they tell us go in. And then the third part is repetition. They repeat the same problem. They grind, grind the problem, um, and then finally, they'll once we're really worked up, they'll say, well, this is the solution. And generally, that's where the propaganda comes in, or the, the uh, uh, I guess, the best option they think, or whoever is doing the propaganda thinks, to, to follow. So both of you know, we, we know each other quite well now. Yeah. We, we coffee, coffee regularly. And um, we know that we've seen such incredible destruction amongst people's mind. Uh, it's been mind buggery, basically, what's been going on. Uh, another thing that I found is that a lot of people are, have uh, medical damage now um, because, again, through propaganda and through repetitive um, information that they, they've chosen to go down a particular route and now they're very much damaged with that. And when they start researching that, they all of a sudden discover many medical professionals saying it's a, uh, some even use guaranteed death sentence. And so the trauma that's coming in is, is quite profound. And so how have you been helping your clients? Because obviously, you know, you um, uh, run a, a type of practice or uh, yeah. whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, and you're, you're quite busy. You do online uh, help as well. And in fact, I, I should put uh, his contact details, your contact details in the description because you, you help a lot of people. How have you been helping people through this trauma of the fear, the propaganda, uh, the, um, and everything that's going on at the moment? I guess um, the one distinction that I have is I'm not interested in creating a label around what it is. Um, I see so many different people in the groups, but also face-to-face, one-to-one, that are having so many remarkably different kinds of experiences as a response to the events, let's call them. And my interest is what, what I would call a, a form of structural psychology. So the essence of it is, is my query is, how are you thinking about what's going on? So it might be someone has had a trauma or uh, someone has had uh, been uh, uh, told to leave their job or whatever it is and suddenly their whole life changes. I'm interested in how are they thinking about that inside themselves? How are they doing that? Because the story is interesting, but it's the struct, how I'm thinking about the story keeps it in place. Can I give an example? So a good example would be going to see a blockbuster movie. We go and see, argument's sake, Lord of the Rings, you know, one of the most famous New Zealand blockbuster movies. 
you know, massive scream, amazing sound. And you go there, you suspend disbelief, you're completely taken away on this journey. And then you come home and a day later you go, wow, I really want to relive that. So you pull out your cell phone and you dial it up and you start to watch it on your phone. Do you get the same experience? No. You can't. You can't get the same experience. But it's the same movie. It's the same actors, same music, same everything. What's different? The structure of it. So how we do trauma is exactly that. It's 3D, sense around, first person experiencing it. That's how we do it. And that's how trauma works. That's how post-traumatic stress sim syndrome works, is that we're running that in the background and we can get triggered, triggered, triggered. So the structure, however, if I take that trauma um, for argument's sake and put it into this little phone and put it over there and for argument's sake run it in black and white, the person who's been experiencing that won't mentally be able to have the same internal response because the structure has changed. And that's where the structural psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, clinical hypnosis, those sorts of tools working more with the, the way we do things at the subconscious level uh, are quite different to talk therapy, a lot of the uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, which is about talking about the thing. And what, what I'm interested in is well, how you're doing it. <laughs> you know, and very quickly we find out how that is happening and we start to uh, uh, sort of remold it until it stops having the, the, the discomfort associated with it. Does that make sense? Mm, no, it makes perfect sense. Uh, in fact, uh, on that analogy, uh, I'd give anything to wipe my mind of the movie Interstellar. Interstellar. I'd, I'd love to watch that again with, 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 with without pre-watching it. Yes, yeah, it's yes. a great movie. And and the thing about you know Interstellar um, was that it was one that really works so perfectly in the cinema, completely surrounded the sound and everything, because some parts are just like utterly remarkable and, and you know the way they put it together it's like wow you can't tell reality from fantasy and this is really important thing here as well is the challenge with the you're saying about fear earlier fear has this remarkable ability that if it's sustained um, or if it's very fast but extreme in its in its uh, context the, the, the mind is kind of almost programmed to take that on board and hold it, almost as a raw state. And that will sit in the background. And that there can start, if it's sitting in the background, can start to influence our day-to-day -to -day experiences. Some, some people often wonder, well, you know, I walked down the street the other day and I saw someone wearing this jacket and they suddenly felt paralyzed. It was because many, many years ago someone did something to their family or a family member. They were there and the person that did this thing was wearing a very similar jacket. And that's the fear is still raw. It's still sitting as what we call first person kind of associated, meaning I'm, I, if I remember it, I'm right there again. Yeah? And that's where these movies are so, with the word propaganda, is so relevant because there are movies that we see that we know um, are kind of almost telling us what could potentially happen in our future. And we just 
suspend disbelief. That's, I mean, remember going and seeing this movie called Death Proof. Horrible movie by the guy who did, um, oh, he's the famous Hollywood guy. Um, anyway, um, yeah, um, Reservoir Dogs, those sorts of things. He did those movies and, and uh, everyone loves them and everything. But it was, there was a part in it where they're driving down the road at night, and I won't go into details because it's just horrific scene. And every time I got in a car, I was, I was, I would, especially at night, I would remember that scene. And it was, because it was so well made. It was, and it was so first person. So what I had to do was I had to change the structure of how that was running in my memory. Now, as soon as we do that and we give options, say, what would it feel the same if it was in black and white? Would it feel the same if it was um, over there, you know, happening on a little TV screen? If, as soon as we throw in choices, that, that extreme level of energy sort of drops away because the mind will suddenly go to the choice that feels the most comfortable, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The challenge with propaganda is it's, there's no let up. There's no comfortable space. It's repeat, 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 suspension of disbelief, the focus on the media. It's just repeat. It's kind of clinically hypnotic. And so we, we stop having a sense that there's a choice about how to respond. I think the other problem too, and this is what I'm personally finding, is we have this entity over here, side A, uh, which is... Um, delivering this propaganda constantly. And then we have side B, who um, they would call themselves as truth seekers, mm. and, and they're, trying to, they're trying to balance this out. Mm. But unfortunately, both sides are delivering what you would call not very good news. Mm. And I sometimes find myself stuck in thinking, gosh, you know, because I'm very aware that, you know, the expectation of something happening is not good. The expectation of disease, expectation of something bad happening is, is not good to, to communicate with people. So, you know, but we also need to wake people up. So I'm kind of sometimes caught a little bit, do I go on about how, how terrible it would be for the 20-minute cities to be implemented and the, the digital currency and how we'd be doomed if that happened and, and, and this and that and uh, what the World Economic Forum, it's actually a really ugly picture. But this is what this is where they're heading. So at what balance? Because we're using fear over here to wake people up and take action. It's fear that uh, tells us to go and 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 hold um, our, our signs in protest. So how, how do we get around that? The fact that really there's only fear being projected. It's a really good question. Um, I think the the thing that we forget about fear is it's not a it's not a useful value. And I would suggest it's not even a value. So we have fear as a behavioral response, and in this case, based on beliefs. This is wrong, this is right, this is right, this is wrong, whatever it might be. It's always adversarial, pretty binary stuff, with a few, little bit of nuance in the middle. But fundamentally, the, the essence of it is that it's a behavioral, almost primal response that we, we can't help but be affected by. And so once again, both sides grind the, grind the problem. Where the discourse gets lost, um, well, not so much sometimes on the, on, one, on the one side, being the political maybe, or the uh, mainstream side, which is, well, if you do this, then everyone benefits. If you do it this way, then the planet benefits, everyone benefits, everyone 
can be happy and own nothing or whatever it might be. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're speaking to a higher value, which is happiness, uh, security, safety. So then they're really good at what they're doing. Remember, a lot of these agencies of propaganda have been studying this for the last two, three hundred years. You know, they're ex experts at this. And in the last maybe 50, let's say 100 years since the First World War, they've been they've been developing these these uh, methodologies of propaganda and everything to such a high level that we don't even know what they're doing most of the time because it's so ingrained. Um, a good example is um, friends and product placement. You know, no one knew that friends, um, they made so much money because so many companies would um, go to the company that was producing the program and say, can we place a product? <laughs> no one knew. No, no one knew until after they'd you know, finished the series that, oh no, we were selling a lot of product because they were placing these things. And because people were watching the show and go, oh my God, I want to live like them or be like them, I want to dress like them, suddenly they're noticing, oh, they, they were, oh, I saw that in next minute. You know, it's like next minute they're buying that thing. It's a product placement. Very, very subconscious, very beautifully, elegantly blended into the context of what's going on. On the other side, that's not going on very much because there isn't a clear sense of an outcome that has a is presenting a value. We, we talk a lot about freedom. Freedom is a value, um, but the value is shared because the other side is talking about the freedom, the freedom to have a, a world that is apparently safer, cleaner, it's going to last longer, things like that. But what we don't have is a sense of the, the other values, the values that make sense with respect to this side. Um, what is the future vision which would uh, feel secure? What is the future vision that would feel safe? What is the future vision um, in this freedom realm that, that talks about um, a culture? Um, there are a few freedom groups out there that are kind of discussing culture but it's very loose, it's very um, intangible. And I think it's because we're moving out of a, a very, very patriarchal, consumer, uh, quite destructive kind of way, of, an engine if you like, that has turned nature into a, a, a bunch of mechanical things to control. And that's dictated at least the last 100, even 200 years. And, and we're trying to move out of that into something where we have to try and work out, well, how do we, how do we work in nature again? What does that look like? What does it even feel like? And how do I do that and still have a Prius, <laughs> you know? And how do I do that and still have a coffee maker? And how do I do, you know, because there's, there's things here that we really like, that we value, you know, they make things easier. You know, I, I have an espresso machine at home and it makes an extraordinarily good coffee. So if I move that over <laughs> to this other new realm that we're kind of emerging, trying to work out what that is, you know, the value is there, I think. There's freedom, but, you know, how does that work? How does this thing called freedom work elegantly in an emergent culture which we haven't actually experienced for maybe a millennia? You know, I don't know if that's kind of useful. Mm. It's yep. just yep. How, how the brain works, but it, those structures are very important. And in the pro world of propaganda and fear, they know how to work the fear, grind the problem, and then 
give us a values-based solution. Be part of the team and, 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 you, and your grandmother will, will survive. Be part of the team and everyone will be well. Um, there's no real proof of that, but the heartstrings are pulled because we don't want this horrible thing to happen. There's the solution. Yeah. And this is the problem, you know, as people are waking, because more and more people are waking up to what's going on. They seem to be. But then, but then as they're waking up, this, this weapon of mass destruction is, is uh, being released more so on them because they're starting to understand the truth. Well, the ch the, sorry to interrupt, but the challenge is that in, in every way this group, let's call them the propaganda people, they know that at some, at some point this, these people are going to wake up. And certain um, number of these people, there's kind of a, a percentage that comes out of stage hypnosis, and it's kind of like 30% of the people on stage who get up at the start, around 25, 30% will just stay there. They'll never move until they're woken up. They'll never, they'll just be there. About 20% at the start will just go, no, I'm not up for this. This is just ridiculous. Don't want to look like a turkey, and they'll leave the stage. And that leaves what 20, 30 odd percent who are kind of in it. But they're kind of also slightly aware that they're in it. But they don't look, want to look like an idiot and they don't want to ruin the game by stepping down. Mm. So they kind of stay. But then they get to a point where, no, this is really uncomfortable I, I, and I don't like Elvis. You know, when they're asked to sing and dance like Elvis, they're not up for it. So they go, no, I'm out. And then they step off the stage. So you're always left with a, a group of people who can't move. They're, they're just, they're in it. They're in the soup. And, and they're they're not going to ever go anywhere. They just, they just sit there, they're in it, they're, and they're, they're safe there they're, because they don't know. They just don't know. It's totally real to them. This other group, the propaganda people, know that they exist and they have set the scene that when they wake up, anything over there is what you'd call the nut house or the conspiracy realm, or, and we see that everywhere. So these people are waking up, they're becoming aware, but they don't really want to necessarily be addressed in that way. Yeah. Um, the other side of it is many people in the, in, in the freedom realm, a lot of them have been aware of this for a very long time. Uh, I myself woke up to a lot of this back 30 odd years ago. Um, so there's nothing new to what's going on for me. The, the, the structure of how it works has been uh, interesting to work out, but it, that was clear to me back in the late 90s. So there's no, no surprise about anything that's going on here, really. The challenge is that this group over here, when they get a sense that this is working even more successfully to grab the group, to, to possibly influence this group that are, come, that are waking up, they become ang more angry. They become more frustrated and they become, they start making, doing name calling. They start using the same languages over here. You know, well, they're just this, they're just that, and then vice versa. So the anger, the fear, everything starts to grow, grow, grow. The only antithesis to it is what we'd call a, um, a quantum linguistic. <laughs> Which is, the more I notice fear, William, the more I feel fascinated and curious about the new life that I'm creating. The more I feel fear and notice this fear around me, the more I feel inspired to look for joy, to look for beauty, to look for... Before I came here today, we took a walk on the beach. And I mean, I don't know if anyone else has noticed, you know, when you walk on the beach, 
none of what we're told in the media, media is actually going on. None of it. And, and we've had a rough time over the last month, two months, three months, six months, three years, let's call it. But what with um, flooding, astronomical amounts of rainfall, loss of life, there is a lot going on. And yet walking along the beach this morning for half an hour, none of that existed. And, and none of how it's been represented existed either. And it also is a moment to realize that it's not, and this can sound selfish, it can self, self, sound self-serving maybe, but it, while I'm walking along the beach, building a sense of connectivity with my environment and myself and feeling relaxed and calm and being with my, my partner and the crazy dog, um, there's a sense that I can feel wellness, I can feel calmness, I can feel connected and joy because I'm not being flooded by the stuff that, forgive me, is not happening to me. And I want to do everything I can to help. I have people, friends who, sorry, I touched the mic. I have friends who live up in those areas. I have family that are in Auckland. And we connect and we try to do, donate money if necessary, those sorts of things. But other than that, I can't do anything. And so to be bombarded and to be feeling so heavy and weighted by the fear, the worry, the concern and everything doesn't actually help me to build resilience and which is actually going to turn out to be the most useful thing to help people in the long term. If I can build a structure of resilience, fortitude, flexibility mentally, emotionally, then I'm much more useful um, to those who are within my sphere of influence and my family and, and those who I can connect with um, when I do. Well, you know, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, and I like the way you used building up your resilience. And that's what I'm witnessing myself with your clients is they, they've got anxiety, fear, um, because they're always thinking about the doom and gloom that's put before them. Yeah. And, and now they're coming in laughing and, 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 and chatting. And uh, so you're doing an excellent, excellent job Thank there. You. And I think... Um, this is, uh, you know, some of, some of us, like, you know, uh, you and I have done not too bad. Like, you know, we haven't had floods here. Um, uh, we haven't had an earthquake uh, and, and, and our family aren't lying under blocks of concrete. <sighs> Don't get me start on that one. Um, and, uh, but what we can do is we, we can help others to be more resilient. And basically, what are functional things that people can do? Because there are a lot of people that have lost their jobs, a lot of people that are under financial duress, a lot of people are worried about the future. So what functional things can they do? And I think, uh, for me, it's always um, the self-awareness of what's going on, uh, actually making a decision not to become a victim of that, because mm. it's really easy just to you know, think downward spiral very, very quickly. And sometimes we've just got to lift, lift ourselves above that. You know, it's really interesting. Um, I, I speak with a colleague in Australia and have done for about 16, 17 years, and we speak regularly. He's written a number of books, Keith Gilbert. He's a lovely, lovely man. And we talk every other week, and, um, and he's trained in the same way I am, and we talk about this at, at often. And many years ago, we were talking about this thing that just popped up, and it was delight and surprise. And there's this wonderful thing that occurs naturally in our lives, and I'll give you an example. Quite a while back, I, I was painting a, a room. I was up on one of these little trestles and I fell off, you know, overstepped. The step wasn't there suddenly and I'm on the ground, twisted the ankle right around, didn't break anything, but boy, that 
you know. So I couldn't walk, couldn't work. Um, and and that went, it seemed to go on for a long time. And then one day I was up a ladder just fixing a light bulb. I can't remember what it was exactly. And I suddenly realized, oh, I forgot about my ankle. Mm. Now, how many times have we had that experience? How many times have we had the experience where that thing that was bothering us, the thing that was constantly in the back of our mind, we suddenly realize, oh, it's not there anymore. Or well, you're in a context where once you would have been triggered into that sort of old response, pattern response to something, you know, family's the best thing, you know. A dear friend irreverently says to me, he says, you can pick your nose, Aaron, but you can't pick your family which means you can control one thing, but you can, can't control the other. But what we can do is control our response. How many times have we been triggered into old, almost childlike responses in a family situation? Because we haven't seen them for months and we go to Christmas dinner or something, and, oh, there it all is. And we, and we even start feeling anxious before we get there. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Every now and then, though, we might turn up with the family and go, oh, something's different. Delight and surprise. The thing that is really useful here, I wonder, because we don't really know where we're going. There's a group of people out there who are, you know, tapping out algorithms and they're, because they treat humans like machinery, or as some people say, sheep. You know, we'll, we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll plan 15 minute cities or 20 minutes, whatever you like, and we'll get more of this going and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, what we've noticed, even with the last three years or even, let's say, um, post 9-11, which is really interesting, that was the a turning point for a lot of control over travel and those sorts of um, experiences. There's been a lot of, you know, um, mechanisms of control. The interesting thing is how many of those have actually had to be remodified, rethought, rethought, you know, we've even got some acts that have been going through you working with a lot of people with the Therapeutics Act. Well, I remember being a charter member back in the 90s, and um, that was when they started putting it through the first time. It just couldn't get traction. Um, they tried to put it through in the early, uh, the late noughties, you know, 2008, nine, something like that, and it couldn't get traction once again, and here we are again revisiting. The difference now is they're slipping through acts constantly, you know, while everyone's asleep in Parliament. Fine. The challenge is we're not machinery. You can't build an ag- algorithm for a human being. You know, G- uh, what is it, GTP chat yep. or whatever it is. Given a link the other day to uh, Nick Cave. He has um, a blog called the theredrighthand.com. It's a fantastic blog. and. Basically, the essence of it is he gets his fans to ask him questions. And one of them was um, around chat GDP or whatever it is and the, uh, the AI algorithm. And someone had gotten this chat to write a song in a Nick Cave way. And then they posted that up and said, well, what do you think, Nick? You know, and it was so fascinating because he gave a really honest, he says it actually sucks because it's got no nuance and da da da. It's kind of uses some of the words, some of the, it uses the format of how I write a song. But in the end, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it doesn't make any actual sense. And, and it's a perfect example of a binary processing unit, which will always be a binary processing unit, trying to mimic uh, what is it? Nuance. It's kind of like a pixel 
you know, a square pixel on a screen, which is trying to mimic the analog way that we see color, the analog way we see sound. It can never do it because at its foundation, it's either a square or a circular pixelated unit of color or sound. And so the, the fascinating thing is, and I'll get back to what I started out earlier, is delight and surprise is what we're engineered to experience. Think of a child learning to ride a bike, stand up. You know, they see it around them and they go, well, I need to do it. It's almost like a program, you need to stand up. They'll grab a leg. And there's that moment where they get their balance and they go, oh, like that. We all experience that constantly when we fall in love, when we have a new idea, when we get that perfect note on the violin or hear a song, we go, oh, you know, there's that delight and surprise. What if the key to this is not knowing exactly what's going to happen, which is what they're trying to engineer, and it's not working for them? Because we're nuanced spiritual biological creatures that are constantly emerging. We're constantly finding ourselves and stuff and creating things. And what if our job is to have a future sense that out there in the future I can, I can think of myself delighted and surprised in my world, in my community, in my family. I, I'm I can almost imagine myself, see myself waking up and going, wow, didn't expect that. Yeah. What does that do? It triggers all the times that's happened in our past and all the times we've unconsciously generated. How many times have you been thinking about someone and the phone rings and they're there? I was thinking about someone the other day and I got an email the next morning from them. Now, how many times? Delight, wow, I was just thinking about them, you know? Now, whatever causes that, who cares? There's a whole lot of people talking about what that is. And yet what it gives us maybe is an insight as to, well, how do we get around the fear? Well, how have we done it in the past? We've suddenly realized that the fear no longer is a big thing because we've overcome it, we've grown, we've evolved. So why, what if we were to utilize that structure of reality that we know so well and actually start benchmarking it if, for, for a, a way of putting it? Utilizing it into our future timeline, if you like, and say, well, I'm going to just going to imagine that out there in the future, I'm, I'm feeling delighted and surprised because something is so just wow. You know, and picture what does that look like in myself? What does that look like in my family? What does that look like even maybe in my community? Yeah. What that does is as soon as we do that, we make it bright mentally, emotionally, make it bright and clear, a little bit larger than life. The subconscious goes, oh, yeah, I want some of that. Yeah. That triggers all of those times in the past where we've gone, oh, yeah, that was fantastic. And then we can relax because we, then we don't have to keep left-braining it, which is, oh, how am I going to fix this? How am I going to, what do we do? What do we do? Because as soon as we do that, the right brain, that creative part of us goes, oh, I can't cope, deal with that. It's just stupid. <laughs> and, and that's what they're doing. They're so arrogantly fixated on their left brain rational take control, which ultimately, remember this, is fear-based. We've got to remember, everything that they're doing is fear-based. Fear that their legacy won't continue, fear that they'll lose, I don't know, something, their, their control, which is always, sorry, but structurally, anyone who's scared of losing their control over others is primarily 
has lost control of themselves. They've lost control of their, 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 of, of their capacity to know who and what they are. And that means they will, if they've lost that control, they can conceive of doing all manner of things that can even be conceived as a little bit inhuman or, or lacking compassion, or as Jordan Peterson calls it, compassionately narcissistic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And because they have, no, they have no visceral connection with a whole working brain-body system. Mm. It's all about fear and controlling what they think they can control, money, the military, corporations, politics, yada, yada so that they can keep perpetuating this thing that actually, let's look back through time, has never really worked very well you know, for, for anyone, yeah. even them, because they keep trying to do it, <laughs> which would suggest it's never worked for them. Mm -hmm. So I think because we are the, a, a larger collective, like by, ex, you know, by degrees of hundreds of thousands, even hundreds of millions of people, if we were to collectively just put our attention on a future of delight and surprise and then allow for whatever that might mean to emerge and then notice what happens with that. That'd be cool, yeah? You know? And start having conversations around that. And what happened recently, I was talking about this about two months ago with, a, with the workshop I run. We want, run this workshop every um, couple of, uh, sorry, every week, and maybe anywhere from seven to 12, 13, 14 people come up. And then one day, we'd been talking about this, and then about two weeks later, after mentioning this idea and giving some examples, they all, and out on that day, they all started remembering that sort of experience for themselves. About two weeks later, f there were about 12 of us, and four people turned up, because we do a round, we, we talk, you know, you start and then we go round and we just talk about what's going on, what, what does it feel like, stuff like that. Four people all told a story, at least one story, one told three stories of delight and surprise that had happened just that week. They go, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. this thing happened. Yeah? And the energy was just so uplifted, it was so vibrant. Yeah? And I think, you know, and that, and as soon as we did that, another person, oh right, Oh, I get it. This thing happened to me this week, you know, because we are, we forget this. We are neurologically structured to learn and to, to evolve and to feel more joy and to feel more expression and to create. That's why the powers that be have to just keep repeating the same stuff, because if they don't, and we go for a walk on the beach, we immediately forget that because our natural state, our organic spiritual state, is to emerge into joy. And that's when Nick Cave and one of his other things was saying, someone said, well, Nick, the world is so bad. What do we do? How do we do this? And he started off talking about, because he lost his son in a really tragic situation many years back, and it changed his life completely. And, and he said, Every day I bring my attention, my awareness to joy. Yeah? If it doesn't bring joy, if it doesn't have the potential to bring joy, I'm not interested. Yeah? Which is kind of weird because some of his songs are quite dark or historically have been very dark. But they're dark, but with 
but they're music. They're, they, in, they, they, get, they get you to think, but they always have a, a, um, a creative joy around them. You know, I feel like we're just getting into this conversation, but we're running out of time, which is which is quite annoying, uh, because even myself, through you know past traumas, I I remember myself using patterning to get to get through it. So I, I'm in this deep dark space, and I think, well, actually, I used to be in deep dark spaces before, and then something good happened afterward. So I need to trust that cycle. I need to trust that pattern, and yeah, give give it. give myself permission to feel this way. Relax. Don't fight it. Um, then the next day things get better, and so I'm 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 used to that now. And you know, um, and but we, we 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 must stop now. But before we do, is there any groups that you would like to shout out for that you're part of? Um, that you know, because sometimes joining um, some social groups can be can be quite. Well, hard. I mean, you know, I I am a, a member of uh, VFF yep. Voices for Freedom. For Freedom. Yep. Um, and I. Uh, well, they do an excellent job, haven't they? Do you know the thing about Voices for Freedom? Um, which I continue to feel inspired by, I think, is that, <laughs> using their terminology, they've held their line, really. And that is that they, you know, basically there's three exceedingly courageous women who has got something going, which I believe is now the largest, second largest union of people in the country, and the largest, um, some people perceive, political um, group in a sense, and political meaning not political, but more having such a strong sense of what's politically right, maybe, I don't know. But their premise is rebuild free, which is rebuild from the, the, the grassroots up. But you know, what's going on in your community, as in Māori it would be, what's going on in your hapu, what's going on in your, your community, your local group, your familial you know, your, 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 your pod, as we're calling it in VFF. And what's going on there and how can we find out where everyone is, what their skills, resources are, who's got a garden, those sorts of things, and, and building that. And, and that's where we put our attention. Because the only real, and, and this was very pronounced in the earthquake, because the earthquake was very different in different parts of Christchurch. Now, I wasn't here, I was in Australia at the time. Um, Having come down here uh, would be nine years ago, um, what I was aware of, I started working with people who were still traumatized after three, four, five years, and still am working with those people. And, but what I've noticed is the stories are very different depending on where you were in Christchurch. You know, some it was, you know, liquefaction, some it was Rockfall, some it was just, all, you know, in the central city and that horrific state in there, all sorts of things. So to say that there is a a general fix, even psychologically, medically, um, politically even, for even one city where there are pockets. I mean, you go to Auckland right now following the floods, there's no way Pihar is the same as Remuera. Mm. No way. And we have people we know in both. There's no way that, you know, and you can be in South Auckland, which hasn't actually experienced very much at all. Maybe very soggy ground, yeah? But hasn't experienced what's happened in Pihar. So you can't sort of from the top down say, well, this is how we're going to. So that's why, you know, saying, um, well, we're going to lock everything down in Auckland. Well, wait a minute. There's a whole group of Auckland, like could be a third, which actually can still go to work because they can still use their cars and they can still drive. And it seems. So why are we why are we doing that exactly? So on the grassroots 
bottom-up sort of level, what we call emergent consciousness level, is, we, um, is, is how we operate the best. So we actually then say, well, actually, this community, this, we notice this, fill your boots. Do what you need to do. You know, find who's got food, find who's got water. And this is what people in Christchurch actually had to do because there was so much segregation, you couldn't actually get anywhere. Mm. And it worked. Mm. And what had also happened, it happened in Wellington in the first days of Wellington, um, what they uh, called the protest out there. But in those first 20 odd days, it was an emergent process. When everyone turned up, no one knew what was going to happen. But we elegantly organized ourselves because we had a value proposition at the top. But I'll tell you, and this is what they talk about um, a lot following it, is that every day, you know, groups of representing would come to a large tent to try and work out what to agree on, to take to the government. The challenge with it was it didn't work. They couldn't agree. Yeah, because it was it was like taking a top-down measurement of what's actually going on here and why we're here, rather than actually just continuing to explore what's actually happening. Mm. Because what was actually happening, I still believe very strongly, is a representation of what is going to happen organically on its own, and I think it's actually happening right now. And BFF tends to kind of be a, a because there's so many people connected on it. And because it's quite spread in terms of who, how it works and quite malleable, yes, there's kind of a top-down sort of code of conduct, those sorts of things. But fundamentally, it's, well, what are you doing? How do we connect? And how is that going to move us, you know, in our collective and in our communities forward? And, and what are the delights and surprises going to be is we notice that certain things are working really well, some things, you know. I think that's yeah. well. I think I think that the, well, everything you said is absolutely uh, spot on. Thank you very much, Aaron. I really appreciate you you talking with us, and I think really we probably uh, need to talk more. Um, and I want to end this mostly because we're going to have a coffee after this video. So, uh, and I'm I'm feeling a little bit caffeine deprived. So we better better carry on. Uh, thank you very much for watching. And just a quick reminder to uh, yeah subscribe, share this video, and please leave us a comment. Uh, please uh, tell Aaron what you thought of the interview. Uh, and also don't forget that um, uh, this is all funded by your donation. So there's links below if you felt like uh, passing on a few dollars. Thank you very much for watching. Counterspinmedia.com